You are listening to Squid and the Ultimate Leafs fan. Hello, Canada and hockey fans of the United States and Newfoundland. And an extra big hello to Canadian servicemen overseas. Well, Happy New Year, everybody, and welcome to the Squid and Ultimate Leaf Fan Show. I'm Mike Wilson. Joining me as usual is my good old buddy, Ricky Squid Vibe. Squid, how are we doing and how are you keeping over the holidays? Uh, I'm doing okay, Mike. It's uh, kind of shutdown time, so yeah. a lot more TV and, uh, and so on. But uh, you know what? It is what it is, like I've said many times, and, and we just have to get through it, live through it, and... Uh, uh, you know, hopefully at some point, which I'm sure there will be, I'm not sure when, everything will get back to somewhat normal. So we just have to hang in and and uh, endure it. Well, that's, again, what we're doing. And I guess we would like to start today's show off with, and, and, and folks, this is the third of our best ofs, and you're not going to be disappointed with this lineup of uh, characters we got coming on today. And boy, that's probably the best way to describe it. I'd, I think leading off with JR, so... Make sure you have a listen to this, but uh, we want to send best wishes and good luck to our good friend, Steve Ludzik, who's in for a liver transplant. Uh, for those who follow us and who aren't aware, he did come in his complications with the blockage and had to have an, uh, uh, some heart work done. So uh, it looks like, now Rick, you, were here, you got a bit of an update this morning that uh, it looks like could be three weeks as opposed to originally thinking it was three months before this would be delayed again. Yeah, he... Uh had the stent put in, obviously, and uh, originally they, they were told three months he would have to wait for the transplant, but now it looks like it's going to be probably three weeks, a month anyway, maybe, and maybe even as, as little as three weeks. So uh, that's good to hear because uh, having to wait three months. Now, the good part is, is they found this when they went in to they obviously test them to get ready for surgery for yes. the, for the uh, the liver transplant. So uh, it's good that they found that. Uh, it kind of is awful that he has to wait a month, but you know what? Let's hope that everything works out okay and uh, he gets through this month good and and uh, we can get it done. Well, he's a pretty resilient guy and a strong guy with a very positive and upbeat attitude, which every time we talk to him, he is. And um, uh, I'm sure if anybody's gonna pull this through, he definitely will with, with flying colors. So all the best to Ludzi moving forward. Uh, I, I guess I would just, uh, we'd like to mention that, you know, yeah, I've moved myself south for the next little while. We are basically quarantined to the condo every day here in Florida, but we don't go anywhere. I go to the balcony, so I bought a dozen books with me to read. And I got to tell you, folks, I just thought we'd switch it up a little bit here. I'm going to catch Squid a little bit off guard in this one. But one book I've read before, I think I've read it twice, I'm going through it again is Game Misconduct, the Russ Conway brilliant story on Al Nicholson and the corruption of hockey. Man, oh man, Squid, this guy, I, like, I, I, like, he is so low, he could play handball against a curb. And I'm telling you, the stuff that this guy did and cheated people on, I, I just, for the life of me, I don't know how he could even look at himself in the morning. I, I got to tell you what, a couple of stories, one story in particular is to show you, and the thing about it is the book goes into such great detail about every dollar and where it went and all the companies involved, and I won't bore you with all that detail, but just to give you an idea, he had a place, his office is 37 Maitland in Toronto. He owned the building. It was 3,500 square feet. He had a law practice. He had his agency business. 
and he had his legal business he did for hockey on top of all of that and a consulting business, pardon me. So there's three businesses in there. He leased out 1,200 square feet to Hockey Canada and he leased out 1,200 square feet to um, the NHL Players Association. Okay, so that left him probably around 1,000 feet for his three other businesses. But meanwhile, he was running Hockey Canada and he was in charge of the NHL Players Association. So he's, and he owned the building. So here's the players, their leader, he's, they're paying rent to the landlord who's their, buy, who's their leader and supposed to be representing them. And you're one of them, by the way, at the time. And secondly, my favorite part of this whole story and shows you how really low you can go. He had four parking spots in the building. Now, he leased six to Hockey Canada with one they didn't have to pay for. And that was $500 a month over there. They were paying over $500 a month. One went to Alan Eagleson because he was in charge of Hockey Canada like at that time uh, for running international hockey. And the NHL Players Association was charged for four. He and, and one of the employees there was saying that there was such confusion. There was no room to park into the cars. They're parking them in back alleys, breaking all these valuations, and people running out just changing cars all the time. Good, four parking spots. And the best part of the story is they're paying $160 a month for a spot. The garage across the street, they're $120 to park indoors. So, I mean, these. this is how low this guy went to squeeze every possible dollar and cheat that he could out of people. And just as... I, 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 it's, it's astounding. So folks, I mean, Rick, you had some experiences. I mean, what, I'm, I'm sure you had him as the agent originally. And I think you told yeah, me he, one time, he didn't even know, he didn't even know who you were at one time. No, he, he, he was my first agent and uh, Bill Waters, of course, and Rick Curran worked for him. And yeah. uh, when he would come around every year to speak to everybody about the NHLPA, what was going on and everything in all the cities. So it came to Vancouver. And of course I was the fifth overall pick that year by Vancouver. So he would take his clients out for dinner at a specific nice restaurant. Um, anyway, so I get there and I'm in this, you know, they got a private room with a big long table and I'm in there and there's a couple of guys there that work for him. I'm not sure who they were, uh, but one of them comes up to me and says, who are you? <laughs> I was like, what do you mean? Who am I? He goes, well, Al doesn't know your name. <laughs> I just kind of went, really? I was a fifth pick overall. I've been his client for two years now, and he doesn't know who the hell I am. Like, but anyway, um, and then of course, fast forward to I can't remember if it was after the first 50 goal season or the third one, one or the other. He called, I think it was the first actually, and he called one day and the phone rang and, and uh, it was him. He said, Al Eagleson here, Rick. Uh, you know, I know I can make you a lot more money in this city and so on and so forth, on and on and on. And uh, of course I said, you know, I, I have no doubt you probably could, Al, but you know, I'm with Bill now because he left Al, him and Rick Kern. And I said, I'm pretty happy where I am. and. Uh, so that was the end of that. Well, now, and, and now speak, now, when you're at the Leafs, now you went to some of those meetings, I think, didn't you? Now, the, the talk is like, he just, anybody would open their mouth. He would just bully them or beat them down. So guys just absolutely terrified to ask a question. Was that always true? Yeah. Uh, in fact, I was on the executive and I believe it was 86 or 87. We were negotiating a new CBA and we were down in uh, the, at the breakers where he had his, condo and everything else 
And uh, anyway, we were meeting, but he, he, the funny thing was I see in recent years when there's been negotiations and you see FAIR or whoever the uh, head of the PA is, and they're going in to negotiate and there's like eight or 10 players going in. I'm thinking, well, that's kind of weird. Like we never did that. It was just Al. <laughs> he would always he would always go negotiate on his own. And I remember uh, we were sitting there and we wanted three things. We wanted fr uh, free agency from 32 to 28. We wanted salary disclosure. We wanted to get rid of recallable waivers. Yeah. Anyway, he comes in with this big 400 game thing that you were going to get 250,000 cash at age mm -hmm. 55. And uh, if you played 400 games, which I had already played, and all I had to do was play one more game to qualify. And uh, so anyway, I, uh, first question somebody asked him uh, was, how are we going to get cash? Like, what about the government? They're going to want their cut. And I believe it was, it was either me or Steve Casper that asked the question. And the first thing he did was he just attacked you like you were stupid, like you didn't know what the hell you were talking about and everything else. Because he wanted to be Lilia so badly that you wouldn't stand up in front of the crowd again and ask another question. And that that was kind of the way he he did things. He attacked you, made you feel so bad that you weren't going to get up and ask any more questions. So that was Al Eagleson uh, to a T. Well, and, and just to further that story, you touched on with the $250,000 payment for 400 games. Being in the financial business, I know a little bit about this, very little, about pension fund surplus. And usually that money, it can be distributed to shareholders or who's ever involved. And at in this point in time, it was the player's money. But what he was doing, it was going back to the owners and they were using that surplus to actually fund that part of it. And I know it's a sticky point with you guys, so I don't want to get any too farther into this, but just goes to show you how deep this book goes. So guys, I'll leave it at this here. If you get a chance, you really want to read about scandalous issues. Never mind. He makes Bernie Madoff look like Mother Teresa. <laughs> okay. So let me tell you. I can't I, even listen, imagine what's in there, then I'll have to get it and read it. <laughs> you've got to trust me on this one. You've got to read this one. You will just, you won't put it down the stuff that just goes and it just the uh, Anyway, there's so much in there. It is definitely worth the entertainment. Look it up. Russ Conway did an absolute phenomenal, phenomenal job on it. I've read, I think it's my third time reading it. I find something every time. So anyway, <laughs> speaking of more positive things, now, I'm, I'm telling you, you can laugh a little bit about now, but he should have spent more time in jail, but Team Canada, the juniors, as we're recording this, they're playing Finland this afternoon. So hopefully all things go accordingly. They win and we're moving into the second round. What do you think of the format so far? I mean, some of these teams are just getting annihilated. Is, should there maybe be a restructuring of some of the talent level? You know, I, I don't know if that's absolutely necessary, Mike. I think during yeah. this tournament in particular I mean you've had teams that have had like I mean when they played Germany they had eight of the regulars up you yes. know so uh, with the COVID problem so I mean I think this is kind of an outlier I mean I think every other year yeah there are a couple of teams at the bottom that end up getting regulated anyway um, that are not very good and so you have what is it eight teams or ten teams 
I think, in it. And, uh, you know, the bottom two are usually pretty weak and they get clobbered yeah. by, the, by the best teams. So, I mean, maybe there's a way of eliminating two teams. Uh, I, I'm not sure because that brings it to six. That's not very many. Um, so I think you, you leave it status quo and, and hope that uh, we don't have another year like this year where teams are losing seven, eight players because they test positive for COVID. So, uh, you know, when they played Germany, I know that was the case and they clobbered them 16-2 when normally that would not happen. No, you're right. Uh, and, and I think in fairness, I think we got to give it another year before we, it just seems to be the big topic this day about the imbalance of the talent level. And I think once, well, as we're speaking here and you're listening to this, they should be playing either Saturday or Sunday. I don't know when they'll be playing, depending on what happens today, but um, the, the hockey gets much better from here on in and you'll start seeing, yeah. I think the level of play will increase dramatically. So we're looking forward to that. January 13th, Leafs open against Montreal. Canadian division. Sort of, uh, yeah. The Canadian division, we asked for it, got it. And uh, we're looking I can't for wait. It. I mean, I'm really excited to see just the Canadian teams playing against one another. And, you know, because everybody always, you know, there's always a thing in Canada with who's the best Canadian team and all this, you know, every year it's always brought up who's going to be the best Canadian. Well, we're going to find out who, who's going to be the best Canadian team because that's all they're playing all year, 56 games. And I can't wait because I think it's going to be great. I'm all set here too. Uh, myself, I'm waiting. Uh, got the NHL center ice package all ready to go. And we're all set up January 13th. And I'll be right front. Won't be missing a minute. So we're ready to go. Well, I think, I think it's time maybe to pass it off to our guests. Uh, we want to thank them all for joining in this, this part of the year. We got off to a great start, I think, with all these guys. Gave us some great insights, some great stories. We're really excited about getting started in the new year. We've got a number of guests lined up that I think uh, you guys out there, listeners, are going to really enjoy. But maybe we want to take a minute here and have a listen to what some of these guys said and remind you of some of the stories that were out there. Okay, so without further ado, here's some of our reviews from uh, the past uh, couple of months. Our guest today has a very impressive resume. 20-year career, 500-goal score. Uh, much like you, part of the 50-goal club a couple of times, uh, almost an average of a point a game over 1,363 games, represented his country in international play, the USA, of course, I'm talking about. And one of the lovable, colorful characters in the game of hockey, we welcome Jeremy Roenick. I don't know if you've heard my story about Gordy Howe no. dumping, dumping snow on my head <laughs> when I was seven years old. So it was in Hartford, we were practicing yeah. and Oh, we had we had a game, and I rushed uh, rushed uh, out of the locker room after our game because the Hartford Whalers were coming on to do wow. their pregame skate, uh, their morning skate. Um, it was at our local arena, and remember, all the kids are hanging over the glass and they're looking and they're watching. You know, Bot, uh, you know, Gordy Howe, Mark Howe, Marty Howe uh, were on the same team at that time. It was like 1977, 1978, and um, Gordy Howe came by me and picked up some snow and dumped it on my head and I was like you know he came by and winked at me and and it was like the coolest thing that had ever happened to me you know it's Gordy Howe just dumped snow on my head he didn't dump snow on anybody else's head he dumped it on mine and you know it was uh it was it was one of the coolest things and I think that's where I really found out that athletes are uh can really make a difference and and really um give kids something to work for uh you can um idolize idolize these guys and and give people stories and just give 
give them a nice warm feeling in their hearts. And I tried to do that when I became pro, but, uh, you know, I moved all the way up and down the, the Eastern seaboard a lot. I went to uh, Connecticut a couple times, New York. I moved to, I moved to Virginia when I was 10 years old and actually played in Virginia for, believe it or not. And then flew up to Newark on weekends to play for the New Jersey Rockets and the New Jersey Rockets was, uh, was one of the best teams in the country. And we won two national championships, but my mom would take me out of school at about one thirty every Friday, take me to the airport. And I'd jump on a people's express out of Dulles airport, fly up to Newark. I'd get picked up by one of uh, my teammates, uh, um, moms, and we'd go right to practice or right to a game. And, um, you know, I played, I, I did that every weekend for uh, 80, 80, 85 some odd games and then national championships. And it was, it was really crazy. It was, um, it was a nutty way to, to be on the best teams, but um, you know, then up to, up to high school, uh, went to Thayer Academy at Tony Amonti, as, uh, as you know, yeah. Squid, um, yeah. he was my, he was my line mate at uh, Thayer Academy. We won two New England championships, had an amazing team and, um, to have a line mate like Tony Amonti in high school and then be able to play in the pros like in Chicago with Tony and Philly with Tony was a very rare thing, but uh, I call Tony my, um, he's my soulmate of line mates. It was crazy because I was 14 years old. So it was that time uh, to possibly maybe go play juniors. Um, I was playing and uh, I was a freshman. I think I was a freshman in high school and I was stayed behind a couple of years in, in school because of my lack of schooling that hockey took away um, <laughs> when, from traveling. Um, it wasn't because of my, it wasn't because of my grades. It wasn't because how dumb or smart I was, even though that wasn't there either. But um, so I was 14 playing high school hockey uh, and I was a freshman and I get a call from Charlie Henry. And Charlie Henry was the GM of Hull, who was uh, Wayne Gretzky's uh, junior team. And I, I, I knew a lot about, um, about the juniors because I would go up to Canada and watch. I would go up to Montreal, really, and watch the, the Verdun Canadians play. Um, Verdun was, a, was, was one of the better Quebec, Quebec teams, uh, Quebec major junior teams up there. So my dad and I would drive on weekends just to go watch junior hockey players play and I thought it was awesome so I knew what it was all about and uh so Charlie Henry goes Wayne Gretzky's coming to Boston and wants to invite you to a game and breakfast and uh talk about maybe going to play for us you know what are you you're <laughs> shitting me what are you talking about Wayne Gretzky wants to come see me I'm 14 I'm literally 14 years old I'm 100 yeah. I'm 120 pounds. I'm this little pipsqueak of a guy. Um, granted, I was good, but I mean, Wayne Gretzky's going to come to Boston. He wants to see me. I said, <laughs> I said, sure. So, I mean, my dad and mom, we went down to Boston. We went to the hotel. Wayne Gretzky came down, had breakfast with us, took me into the, into the, into Boston garden, into the locker room and pretty much showed me what it was like, um, you know, yeah. being a pro. And I couldn't believe it. Like it was hard for me to speak uh, what was going on, you know, seeing, Paul Coffey and Mark Messier and, and Anderson and all these guys that I've, that I watch on television and uh, brought me in after the game also. And asked was, was telling me what, all about Hall and how it helped the, your career and playing in the best, the, you know, the best players and yeah. the best talent. And uh, I, I just didn't know what to say. The only problem was, is my mom was totally against it. So I was like, oh, yeah, I'll go play for, for Wayne Gretzky's team. Wayne Gretzky, how can you say no to Wayne Gretzky? 
Um, and my mom said, I don't care who Wayne Gretzky is. You're not leaving home. And I was like, oh, okay. So I ended up staying at the Air Academy because my mom, um, she didn't want me to leave and go away from her. She was, uh, she was too much of a, of a homebody for her kid. And so really cool. It was really cool to have uh, Wayne Gretzky uh, looking at me at the time. And it was, I told this story with him. So in uh, two, 1991, so this is only seven years, seven years after was my first all-star game in Chicago and who sat right next to me in the locker room. My first all-star game in Chicago, obviously my home city was Wayne Gretzky. And I said, um, and I said, I said, Wayne, I said, how weird is this, right? (laughs) Seven years, seven years ago, you're asking me to go play for your, for your junior team. And now I'm sitting right next to you in an all-star game. How about that big boy? And he's like, it's amazing. That was, it was pretty, it was a fun story. Uh, and one of your favorites uh, I'd like you to touch on was uh, Wayne Van Dort. Yeah, Swoop. We call him <laughs> Big Swoop. Yeah. You, you, you want to talk about a guy who, thank goodness, thank goodness he, um, he played in the National Hockey League because he, he definitely wasn't going to be a teacher. That's for sure. Um, one of my favorite, literally he's one of my favorite um, teammates for a lot of reasons because he was one of those guys who's like, he would come into the locker room like, hey, guys. What's going on? Who are we playing today? And we're like, hey, Swoop, what's going on? You ready? Yeah, I'm ready. Right? Big fighter, right out of Vancouver, and um, couldn't couldn't score a goal if you you know if you or hit the hit the ocean if you put him on the beach, you know, with luck. But he could fight, and he big was tough. Yo, oh, and he's big. This big old head of his, yeah. right? He's so he's so intimidating. But he's a big teddy bear, right? He's the nicest guy. Um, still, I'm still friends with him today, and I, I, I think he laughs when I describe, you know, what Swoop was like. I remember, and this was this is per- perfect vintage Wayne Van Orp. We're going to the airport for a road trip, and um, he's riding in the back seat. Mike Hudson and I are, are in the front seat, and we pass by this honker of a van. I mean, it's falling apart. It says it's rust all over the sides. It's an old, old looks like, um, uh, like, um, like one of those uh, bands that uh, that that was going to Woodstock, you know, back in the sixties, <laughs> right? With and on the side, on the side, it says with a phone number, and Swoop picks up the phone and calls this person and says, "I want to buy your van, man." And the guy, and I'm like, you're not, you're really going to buy that van? He's like, sure. He goes, how much you want for the van? The guy says like 1500 and Swoop goes, I'll give you 500 for the van. <laughs> right. And the guy took it. He bought this van and literally re redid the inside and put panels on side and redid the inside himself. I think he lived in the van for a little bit because he loved that van so much, but it was for a professional athlete to buy this shit clunker of a van off the highway going to the airport for a game um, was one of my favorite moments. And he loved that van and it, it seriously, it stunk and it was old and it was, <laughs> it was rusty. And he thought this thing was the greatest thing in the world. And that's why I love Wayne Van Dorp because he just appreciated having anything, appreciated playing in the league, appreciated his friends. And, um, but we were, I'm going to tell you one more story about Swoop. So we're skating in Montreal. We're going around. You know how in, in, in warm-ups, you go out one side, you know, you each go to the net, and then you're kind of yeah. going this yeah. way. Well, 
Wayne wasn't watching where he was going. He was too busy in Montreal looking up in the stands as we're skating around. And I'm skating, and we come to the middle, and I look up, and here's, here's Swoop coming at me. Now, he weighed, outweighed me by about 150 pounds. And I didn't know what to do, and I had nothing else to do. So the only thing I could do is drop my shoulder really quick and lay a shoulder right into his chest. And I hit Wayne Van Dorp so hard in the warmups in Montreal, right? And, I rem- and he went down in the end. He almost got knocked out. And I remember we came into the locker room after warm-ups and he goes, nice hit, kid. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, that's, that's just swoop, right? He just didn't care. He said, nice hit, kid. And, Please. you know, I was, it was just, he's just, he's a wonderful man. I, I was at this game and you're playing the Leafs in the playoffs. Yep. I was doing Leafs TV at the time, yeah, by you the were. way, too. The and, and the post-game shows. And the puck goes in your end. You back to get it. Then Tucker, I think he started at center ice and built steam up and ran cool. you and hit you behind the net. Yeah. The hit was probably one of the hardest hits I've ever seen. You're on the receiving end, so you can, you can verify that. The crowd actually stopped, and the players actually stopped and went sonic because they thought, what just happened? Oh. Oh. You looked like a drunken sailor walking off the yep. ice. You walked off the ice, but I remember sitting to my, thinking to myself, Okay, if this guy comes back, oh. we're in big trouble. And you remember, you scored the overtime yep. goal, and you it did, was uh, you didn't do the finger. Yeah. <laughs> you skated the whole lap of the ice and let the fans know who yeah. scored the goal. Yeah, I, I I remember that hit. I was coming around the net, and he caught me. He caught me kind of like the way that I was explaining. I like to catch people. He cut me off on the side of the net, and he hit me so hard, I literally went went black went blind it couldn't like i sat there i couldn't see anything i i, I felt like you know droopy the dog i was like yeah I couldn't i it was again one, one of the hardest i've ever been hit but it was crazy because the biggest hit happened later when you score the goal yes when that's i scored right. the goal that's right sammy kapanen sammy kapanen little sammy kapanen yeah he hits sammy kapanen so hard. Darcy Tucker is a tough mother. You know, you know, he's, he's a, again, he's a guy that you know how he's going to play. I love Darcy too. He's a friend of mine. I love him. He hit Sammy Kapanen so hard against the boards. Yeah. And Sammy did the, Sammy did the duck. He didn't know where he was. Right. <laughs> by the way, by the way, players today, if they got hit like Sammy Kapanen, they'd be done for three months, three months. They'd be out of the game. If, they got hit like Sammy Kapanen got hit in this game. Sammy Kapanen, the warrior, true, true heart and soul guy he is, he stood up. He started trying to get to the bench. The fans are going crazy. I mean, that place was as loud as I've ever yeah. heard it in, yeah. in, at, at the Air Canis. It was the Air Canis Center, at the yeah, time, I think. Yeah. And the yeah. place is going nuts. We're in overtime. And Sammy Kapanen is literally falling, and he has the duck legs, and he's trying to, he doesn't know where to go. And I remember Keith Primo stepped off the bench and literally, like, you know, gave him the hook to bring him into the bench. He couldn't find where the bench was. So he gets off. I, I jump on. The puck goes down the ice. And I think it was uh, Brian Leach or Sandine that turned the puck in, over inside the blue line. Tony, Tony Monte and I turned on the, on the two-on-one the other way. 
and I roofed one over yeah, Eddie Belfort's Eddie <laughs> shoulder. I think it was the best <clears throat> shot I've ever had. It's my favorite goal I've ever scored. I always <laughs> loved playing Toronto because, you know, playing in Toronto to me was like was the ultimate. You know, playing in front of people that knew the game, playing in a historical city. I think I scored more points against Toronto than, than any other team. But that goal went over Eddie Belfort's shoulder. And, you know, I played with Eddie. He's one of the best. He was one of the best goaltenders of all time. But, you know, I saw that puck go in and the celebration. It, the, the place went from pandemonium to complete silence. Silence, yeah. Complete silence. I believe that a was picture. That was double or triple overtime. Too, it was double it overtime. Not? Yeah, double. it was double yeah. overtime. It was double overtime. And I, there's a picture of me celebrating, right? Yes. I'm running <laughs> and everybody coming to me. And there's this picture. And it's a great picture because the look on my face celebrating, but that's not why it was a good picture. Because in the background, if you look at the fans in the picture, there are people that are like, like with their head back, there's people <laughs> with, their, with their hands on their face. But there's one person in the, in the picture that's going like this. <laughs> giving, me the, giving me the finger and swearing at me. And I'm like, that's just, that just symbol. Uh, some is a like symbolic to me how Toronto fans are right, and that's they were so passionate, and I knocked them out of the playoffs. Yes, you did. And they didn't, and they didn't make the playoffs for nine years after that goal. What was your mental state going through that whole period? And again, going from an original six team, a team like Chicago, and you're going to the desert. Yeah, that's not surprising because Bob Pulfer was the cheapest son well, of a bitch you ever witnessed <laughs> in the NHL. I, I went know, through he, that too. Yeah. You know who it was? It was Bob Pulford and Bob Murray at the time too. Because oh, Murph, Murray. Yeah, because Murph kind of came on board. So it was the two of them that kind of um, kind of shipped me out of Chicago. But um, I remember I remember this because this is the this when people say if there, if you could ever change something in your career, what would it be? And I think I would have changed the way that I treated that whole negotiation with the Blackhawks and with Mr. Wirtz and um, some of the things that I said, some of the things that he said. And, you know, that's where I realized that they're the owners of the team. I mean, they own the team for a reason. It's their team. If they have a certain way they want to run the team, then so be it. Um, I was a brash, cocky, arrogant, loudmouth kid, you know, coming off of 500, you know, 50 goal seasons, 100 point seasons and seeing Eric Lindros make $3 million without ever playing a, a day in the, in, the, in the league, you know, at 96, I thought, you know, $4 million, you know, that's all I wanted at the time. I wanted a $4 million contract. This is 1996 and the Blackhawks didn't want to want to pay it to me. And because of our squabbles, they shit me out of, uh, out of, um, out of Chicago and I would have gone back and if I could go back, I would definitely would have respected the, the process um, more. I think the dialogue would have been different and uh, I probably would have been the Hawk the rest of my career, but to go from Chicago to the desert and play in the desert was, I mean, you can't get two polar opposite um, kind of situations, but I, I love playing in the desert and I had a great, great six years, five years in the desert and um, still live there today. So really it wasn't a bad trade in terms of how my life turned out, but it didn't turn out great in my career because my career after kind of after that kind of slowly started going the, the wrong way. Um, and I think it was because that was the first time in 1996 that I ever experienced as a person, 
um, somebody or a team not wanting me on their team. And it was, it was kind of a strange feeling. So I'm picking up the phone and right before I pick up the phone, Wayne Gretzky calls. It's like, Hey, JR, you know, what, what you doing? I'm like, yeah, nothing. <laughs> Just, you know, <laughs> not telling him what's going on. And he goes, I want you to come play in Phoenix. You know, they love you here in Phoenix, you know, come play for us in Phoenix. And, um, I'm like, oh, no, here, I'm just getting ready to tell Daryl Sutter that I want to go play for him in Calgary. And Wayne Gretzky, now again, you know, hence 20 years, no, yeah, 20 years to the, almost to the year, um, when he tried to get me to go play for Hall. And I said, no, I can't say no to him like, the second time. So I said, uh, I said, you can't say no to Wayne Gretzky in 2005. So I went and played in Phoenix. And I remember I was in the, one of the best shapes I, that I ever was. But Gretz didn't give me – I think he brought me there maybe to sell tickets, not play hockey, because he put me on the fourth line <laughs> and uh, didn't play me all that much. And um, it was a kind of a tough year. But I remember battling Gretz, um, you know, just because I'd walk into the locker room and, you know, you see the board and they had the names on the boards, you know, of, of what line you're on. And I was always on the side or I was on the bottom. And, you know, if, if I had a, if I had a line, I was excited, but if I was on the side of, of the board, I was pissed off and I, and I made sure that I showed it. So there was a practice going, I remember this one time walk in, they have the practice lines up on the written on the board and I was on the side, I, meaning I didn't have a line. So what do you do in practice? You, you, you sub in, right? So you take somebody's spot and do a line rush and all that stuff. And I remember we're doing line rushes, doing three on twos and three on threes and, you know, line rushes back and forth. And I'm standing against the boards and I'm just standing on against on the boards with my arm on the boards and I'm staring at, at, at Gretz and Gretz is standing at, at the, at the red line watching. And I'm just standing there and I'm looking at him with my arm like this. And I just keep staring at Gretz. And Gretz goes, are you going to take a rush? Are you going to take a line rush? And I said, are you going to give me a line? <laughs> and he just, he just shook his head. And he goes, I, he goes, I don't know. And I looked at him and goes, well, I guess I don't know if I'm going to take a line rush then. I'll just sit here until you give me a line. And he just, he just turned away from me and he shook his head. And he's like, whatever, JR. In Chicago, you're a very popular player, so you got a chance to, I think, hang with a couple of uh, famous people in that city. One basketball of them, guys? Yeah, one of those <laughs> basketball guys. And there's, there's a great story that I've heard that you that uh, with Michael Jordan, you guys playing golf one day. And, uh, and I agree with you. I think you said you've made a legendary by this story about playing golf and drinking beer and then him going up and scoring a bunch of points one night. That's and maybe you want to tell us that story. Yeah, he's... Um, you guys, I, I, I assume you saw um, the documentary yeah. um, yes. with, with yes. Michael Jordan. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly how Michael Jordan was. It's exactly how he is. It's exactly how he, he lived his life. Um, exactly how he wanted everybody. He wanted everybody at their best. I've never seen a competitor um, or an athlete um, so focused, so determined, so um, just so ready um, to and prepared to play his sport. I mean, Michael was the ultimate competitor. He made everybody better. He dragged, he dragged people into the fights, into the games, and he hated to lose. Boy, did he hate to lose. And it goes back to the golf round. I, it's, a, it's a Sunday night, and I get a call. 
it's in April, right? Right before the playoffs are getting ready to start. And the weather is actually pretty nice at the time. And Gretz and, and, and Jordan says, meet me at the golf course, Sunset Ridge, seven o'clock, we're teeing it up. So I get there. We play 18 holes. I beat him for a few grand. And um, it's 10 o'clock, 1030 in the morning. And I think we're done. We don't have a game that night. We have the day off. The Bulls are playing Cleveland that night. So I'm thinking, play 18, he's going to go back and take a nap, get ready for the game. He, I, I'm getting ready to leave. He goes, let's go play 18 more. I'm like, you can play 18 more. You want to go play, you want to play 36? He's like, yeah, I got to get my money back. So we order, he orders a bunch of beers and we go back out and play another 18. I, we, we polished off probably a case between the two of us. And, uh, I beat him for a couple more grand. And, um, after it was about three o'clock now, three o'clock in the afternoon and he's getting in the car. He has a car picking him up to take him to the, to the game down to Chicago stadium. He's going right from the golf course to the game. And, uh, I'm like, hey, Mike, I'm, I'm making sure I'm, I'm calling my bookie. I'm putting a bet on Cleveland tonight. No way you guys win it tonight. He goes, tell you what, I'll bet you what, you, what, you, what I lost you today. We win by 20 and I scored you. No question. I'm like, you're on. 50, he dunks 52 and they win by like 26 and and i knew because i remember i remember i remember after watching this watching the game i said he could have cared less about beating cleveland he could have cared less about that game because i i think that was the year they had one of the, the best teams of all time they knew they were going to win the only reason he cared about winning that game is so he could get the money back that he lost to me on the golf course but Nobody, nobody can play 36 holes and um, take care of themselves the way that he did that day and go out and put up a game like that. But Michael Jordan, oh, I, man, I know, I know one, I know one guy that could do it. Boris Solomon. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. I actually, this is fun. I actually just told this story uh, yesterday um at the, oh. this rally that uh, rally that i'm in it was kind of oh. funny because I, I said there's only one time i played drunk in the national Hockey league <laughs> i played i played absolutely hammered um in 1994 i believe it was 1994 92 so you know was a we, we, we had we had strikes yeah. we had strikes and lockouts lockouts and strikes well at this time of this time of the year, it was right before playoffs. There's three, there's two days, two games left before playoffs. So we were talking with NHLPA that the best time to strike was right before playoffs, because as as you guys know, the the, the salaries stop once mm -hmm. playoffs. And that's when the that's when the teams make their money is yeah. during the playoffs, right? Because they don't have to pay the players. So our best bargaining power was to strike right at the end of the season, right before playoffs. So we're going to play in the playoffs. So I remember the last game of the season, we're in Detroit. <clears throat> and we're, gonna, we're, we're striking. We're definitely striking. <clears throat> so we're, playing we're getting ready to play Detroit, and nobody's going to go to the rink. We're going to go to the professional ballet over <laughs> in Windsor. <laughs> So a bunch of us get in the car, get in the cabs, and we go through the tunnel at like 12 o'clock in the afternoon. And we go to, we're going to go have lunch at the ballet in Windsor. 
and we're sitting we're sitting in the at the at the at the at the club and we're drinking and we're enjoying the we're enjoying the uh the ballet and it's about four o'clock and it's like we still haven't gotten the call we haven't gotten the call like we're waiting for the call to, to, to say okay boys we're striking we're striking we're striking no call no call finally Chelly calls Chelly calls um the uh I, I think it was I can't, can't forget who who was who it was at the time was the was the head of the PA but um said what's going on it's four o'clock in the afternoon we you know now it's four thirty five o'clock are we striking or what when are you going to announce the strike and he goes oh we're not striking today we're striking tomorrow <laughs> what are you we're like we're not we're not striking today and we're hammered all of us i remember us running out of this out of the club getting into the cab flying through through the windsor tunnel back into detroit right to the arena well we walked like eight of us walk into the into the arena joe lewis arena we stunk to high heaven and keenan is sitting there and he's looking at us and he's just shaking his head because he sees that we're just like lit up smell our our suits are all over the place. You can smell beer all over us. And I remember sitting in the locker room going, I'm going I'm, I'm to die. There's no way. And I'm going to get traded. This is going to be awful. And this is where I really learned that playing with guilt is sometimes the best way to play because I played <laughs> one of my best games I ever played. Because if we didn't win and, we didn't, and, and I didn't play well, that we were going to get it from Mike something fierce but the thing is is we tied 2-2 that game and I scored the goal and had an assist and I remember walking onto the bench still reeking of, of sweat and, and alcohol and Mike Keenan goes good game kid good game and I was like whew, whew. I was like wow I said I slipped by that one Squid, our guest today is one of those types that needs no formal introduction and simply stating his first name says it all. The first overall pick in the 1985 draft by the Leafs after his stellar career in the WHL, converted from D to a forward, made the all-rookie team after setting a Leaf goal-scoring record of 34 goals, which has been broken since by some kid that I forgot his name. But it was a hard-nosed play that resonated fans with this guy, and I'm referring to Leaf great Wendell Clark. In order to make the team, I thought I was getting cut. I got called in. You remember that 7 a.m. phone call that they usually phone you? You're either going on the plane to Europe or you're going the plane home. And I got the 7 a.m. phone call, and I thought I was uh, going to get cut. And Terry Simpson and Sherry Basson uh, said, we'd, we'd like you to play on the team, but uh, you're, you're going to be playing some forward, some defense, because they wanted to take – we want to take eight defensemen to World Juniors. So myself – and John Miner, who was playing on their John Pats, both played forward and defense. And uh, uh, luck be have it, Dave Gertz, who was one of the other defensemen from Prince Albert, he broke his leg in an exhibition game in Finland. So that's why I ended up playing some forward and some D. And so I played three games forward and three games defense in, in the World Juniors. And it uh, must have been the Leafs. They just scouted the three games I played forward in World Juniors because I ended up being a forward. But uh, yeah, well, that, great, uh, that wouldn't surprise me. <laughs> a, a great experience and a little story. Uh, didn't know till later, till we were doing something with the World Juniors, Gary Roberts and I, 
because the year I made the World Juniors, uh, Team Canada is the hardest thing to, to, to play on. It's probably the first time a lot of us, we don't know if you're going to make the team or not. There's that many good players playing for any Canadian team. Mm-hmm. And, and so we're, Gary Roberts and I were doing a talk, and I was saying how you have to be a team guy. doesn't matter where they put you. And I explained how I went from defense to forward. Well, lo and behold, Gary Roberts was one of the guys that was cut uh, my year at World Juniors. So he got cut because I got moved to forward. So Gary was looking at me as I was telling the kids, and he goes, you mean to tell me I got cut because they moved the defenseman to forward? And, and, and that year, uh, Todd Gill got cut, Joe Noondike got cut, Gary Roberts got cut, and Patrick Waugh got cut from that World Junior team. Craig Billington beat out. Uh, Patrick Waugh on the uh, world junior teams. You, you never know, you know, later, you know, Patrick Waugh, one of the best ever. Uh, Gary Roberts, Nui, uh, Hall of Famer. You, you never, you never know that that Team Canada, that's the, that's the toughest thing. I know, Rick, you played in some, some of the Team Canada stuff and that's, that's some of the hardest because everybody's good. Here you are, an 18-year-old kid coming from Kelvington, Saskatchewan, coming to this draft, you're the first pick taken all. You're sitting at the table with the owner and Bob Stellick tells a story that during that time, I don't know if you remember this or not, Ballard's trying to hire him away from central scouting, and you're really uncomfortable because they start talking about salary, uh, salary and bonus and all this kind of stuff. And you wanted to leave and Howard said, just sit there, it's fine. And they're negotiating right in front of you, and you just kept trying to turn your head. So <laughs> what was going through your mind when, when all this was all going on? Uh, no, well, that, like you say, it, it's all really a blur. You're a kid, you're getting drafted, it's... Uh, the least nervous probably at the time of the draft because I ended up going first. I didn't have to wait, uh, but then you're nervous. You're meeting all the people. Uh, Ricky Vibe, Ricky was there at the draft. That's the first time I met Rick. He had, uh, he had black hair, not so much gray then when I first met Rick, but, uh, and then. Well, you, 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 had hair. you had hair. <laughs> and I had hair then. <laughs> but, uh, but really just sitting at the table and, and, and really just everything is a blur, right? Uh, right with that whole draft thing because it, it's all happening in front of you and 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 um, you know even probably more when Rick got uh, taken and everything but it, you do everything on your own there's not agents and groups and handlers and everybody telling you what's going yeah. on you're really going there as an 18 year old kid I know my interviews I'd went into the dropped off in a cab uh, the day before to do an interview with the Leafs and you're going in the back door off church into the hot stove so first time in around the building and that's the door you go and you can really this is a door into the Maple Leaf Garden that you don't realize you're going into the hot stove and meeting the whole whole group of Dan Maloney and John Brophy and and Jerry McNamara and and, and the whole works uh there for uh, the day before meeting. Now uh Wendell you're during your, one of your negotiations your dad Les apparently hit it off with Harold quite well right off the bat and uh there is a story that he actually gave him a satellite there so he could watch the games back on the farm. Is that true? <laughs> Yeah, that was, isn't that it? A little difference in the money today. I got a $5,000 satellite dish, those great big dishes. That, yeah. And he said, so your parents could watch the game. And lo and behold, my first tax receipt, I got the tax bill. So I ended up paying for half the dish anyway. <laughs> I got the tax bill for the dish and, and, and about six months later. It, uh, yeah, the mom and dad and, and Harold uh, got along very well. Uh, Harold got along with a lot of the parents if he traveled. Uh, out west a lot. I know that's when he'd run into uh, Russ's Russ's mom, and then my mom and dad would either be Winnipeg, Calgary, Edmonton. They do they do those games, and he loves sitting in the stands and or uh, eating breakfast in the morning with the parents, and just uh, 
giving his two cents on the game or what's going on in the country or he'd be asking uh, the parents what's going on out west here with the politics and all that so he, he loved uh, talking all the time you played for I think around six or seven because six coaches I, I've, I've counted anyway if my number is right but um, and he got Ballard at the helm now some of these coaches like Maloney, Bernsey and uh, Brof the characters and Uncle Hal running the show. I remember Boris Salming telling us one time, uh, he was on the show a while ago, and he said, driving to the rink every day, you're just going in and you're walking, what's it going to be today? Like, what could be going on in this circus today? Did you ever get those thoughts, like, especially with all those characters around you? Maybe speak to that. Yeah, no, I, I uh, we do a lot of events now, and I know I was doing a lot with uh, Paul Coffey, I think the last few years, and Paul says, I just want to hear your guys' Toronto stories. We were winning the cup, but you guys have way better stories of what's going on in the game. And, you know, we'd be coming down to the rink on a game day, and all of a sudden you're locked out of the medical room because the trainers, the doctors are working on Harold in the medical room. And he fell in the hot tub off that board that he was sitting on, and there'd be a panic going on. And you guys as fans don't know what's going on in the dressing room. This is during game time. This All this is happening in the dressing room. Then we got to go out and play a game. And your your owner's drowning in the hot tub. And it's uh, all, it, a lot of, at the time you think, is, you know, I'm a rookie. So it's, well, I guess that's the way it is. And, and, and uh, walking in, um, you know, Ricky and Boris Salming, this is like, they, they've seen this already five, six, seven years. They know what's going on and and so it's it, it, it was a lot of a lot of fun like I said the, the the dressing room part is what makes it and and I, I think you really find out about a lot of your teammates it isn't winning is easy because everybody gets along everything's going good when, when things are tough and you're not winning and we didn't always have great regular seasons and but still made the playoffs we had a pretty good group of guys that didn't point fingers and they just went out and played and and, and, and a lot of times, you, you know, there was fingers pointing at you from, from the outside, but that dressing room stayed pretty good in Toronto. And, and uh, that's, that's when you find about how, how strong uh, a lot of the good character players that you had, the players that went on that did well after they left Toronto. Like, like Rick went on to Chicago and Buffalo and kept putting stats off. Stevie Thomas went on, had a great career. Big Daddy went on and played a lot of years and came back again in 92 there and, 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 and Dave Ellett went on and, and you know, um, Craig Muni went on, played in Cups in Edmonton that didn't really play much in Toronto. Like, we had some really good players uh, that you could see were good because they went on to other teams and, and did well for a lot of years. Who was one of those guys that surprised you was tougher than you would have thought he was to play against when he came into the league and went through it a couple of times? Or a couple guys. Uh, I, I don't know if anybody surprised you. You're, you're pretty much ready for everybody. Um, yeah. Uh, and and uh, the players all know the players. I, when we still talk to the fans now, the fans are surprised. And the players go, no, no, we, we always knew he was pretty good. It's just people aren't thinking of him that way. Or he's not covered as much because he's not playing in a big market. Uh, but I remember we were playing in a game once. And uh, it might have been in Minnesota. And I hadn't, you know, you're, you're going through and, who can play this way and who can play? I'm on the bench. I think I was asking, it might have been Rick or Lehman or somebody. And I'm going, Brian McClellan, I've heard he's pretty tough, but I don't know. All of a sudden he gets in a fight right in front of me with, with Big Daddy and Brian McClellan could throw. It was a big lefty. And I go, okay, now he's tough. Yeah. <laughs> but Brian was a guy that didn't want to do it. And it's not like, but 
but he knew what he was doing. Like he could play it. It was like one of the guys, just don't wake him up because um, it's not that he wanted to do it, but he did know what he was doing as far as fighting. Squint, well, it's, funny, it's funny you bring that up because in, it was in Minnesota as well where uh, Gary Nyland was, was a rookie and Al McAdam was on Minnesota North Stars, played at the old Met Center there. And of course, I know Al from PEI and he was a farm boy in PEI and uh, he, he was pretty darn tough for a guy that wasn't, you know, extremely big. And uh, Gary kept giving it to him all night and calling him an old man. And, Gary, I said, you better be careful. I said, you know, he, he's pretty tough. Yeah, he's old, he's old. And sure enough, he just kept it up, kept it up. And then they dropped the gloves. The cat had hit him about six times. There was blood everywhere. <laughs> Came to the bench. I looked at Gary and Gary looked at me and he said, don't say it. And I said, no, I won't. <laughs> <laughs> now, the other one is, Wendell, like the family, you touched on your family connections, Joey Kocher and uh, Barry Melrose. Now, there was word at one time, and I'll give you a chance to defend yourself here, that they would always like to have Kocher on the ice with you when you played the Red Wings because they think you might ease up a little bit and not go quite as hard on your cousin. But I would suggest that's not your character. Uh, no, they pretty much played the same. That happened in 87. They, they put yeah. Joey on uh, playing. And, uh, we, we just, but I wasn't fighting Probert in the playoffs then either. But, it, but Joey uh, could play hockey. You know, he proved it winning. I think he's won four Stanley Cups or three Stanley Cups playing and coaching. But uh, we played hard, but it wasn't, uh, we weren't the Sutter family. So because we come from the same town, we weren't going to be fighting uh, on each other. And I wouldn't be intimidating Joey in, in any form uh, because he was as good or better than anybody at it at, at what he did. So, um, it's just one of those things. We were, uh, we, we all came from Calvington, the Melrose, the Coaches, the Clarks. We're all, we're all related through marriage. You know, in a small town, we're all touching somewhere along the way. But uh, no, it was, uh, it was just a, a great rivalry. My first time in Detroit, a little story about Joey. Yep. Joey invited me out for dinner before the game. And, uh, I guess we played there Friday. So Thursday we go in and Joey invites me out for dinner. And that, his roommate at the time, he didn't tell me, and I didn't know anything about it, was Bob Probert. So that night, I, I'm meeting with, with Bob Prober to end up fighting about eight times the rest of my career. But it's uh, just one of those things, that the people you meet, and, and uh, it's, it's one of the greatest things about our game of hockey. No matter how we all played, uh, we got to do a lot of charity and alumni stuff post-regular post season. It's, it's great seeing all the characters on the different teams. And we all have the same things in common. You may have not got along on the ice then, uh, but we're thick as thieves in alumni stuff because we all we all live the same life our guest today is considered one of the good guys in the game played 16 years as a pro won a stanley cup moved into broadcasting and now serves as the executive director of the nhl alumni association glenn healy take us through playing hockey out there and starting how did you get stuck in goal were you the yeah. smallest guy in the street or something or the youngest guy no, uh, well, Pickering is, is the home of an eight-reactor nuclear power plant, right? So leave Toronto, and it's east of you smell it, and south of you step in it. Uh, and then you found it. Here we go. Uh, when I started, uh, it was my, my dad came from Scotland after World War II, and all of the, the, the people in our church league, their kids were playing hockey. And so my dad immediately thought, well, then we've got to play as well. And so my first year, they used to have, and this really dates me, this wouldn't date Rick, but they had the buzzer system. So you were on for two minutes, and then the buzzer would go off, and, and you would go off. And then 
that buzzer would go off and you go back on. So I played that entire first year, get on the ice, buzzer would go off, I would go to change, and by the time I got to the bench, because I couldn't skate, I'm back on. I've never left the ice. So I'm the only guy in the Holy Redeemer Hockey Association that played every minute of every game all year long, because I never got to the bench. But I spent the first year never touching the puck, and my dad was a genius scout. He said, well, if you can't go get the puck, why don't you let the puck come to him and make him a goalie? And that was where the, <laughs> the legacy began. Pretty significant hockey hotbeds in Toronto and Michigan. You moved to LA and you're playing there. So talk about the experience playing there and part two of that question. And all of a sudden, you know, I'm going to go with this. August 9th, 1988, the hockey world turns upside down when this guy number 99 shows up in town. So the difference is going between before and after. I didn't realize we traded for Wolf Paymont. Did we get Wolf? <laughs> you got him. Okay. <laughs> you got him for Bernie Nichols. Yeah. The, uh, you know, the, the first year in L.A., uh, we, we wore the yellow pants and the yellow sweaters. And, and we had uh, Culver City Ice Arena, which, which oh. Rick would remember really well. I mean, at one point, it got so bad, we didn't even have lines on the ice at Culver City. I would take the net and put it where I thought it would be. And if they scored on me stick side, I just moved the net. Right? Now, hey, there we go. I got that problem fixed. And so, but we were a team that were, were uh, full of witty goon talkers. Like, we could beat anybody up. And I remember my first game in training camp, we finished the game in Duncan, B.C. against Vancouver with three players on each bench. And college guys thinking, this is the NHL. Like, this is what I signed up for. Okay. And then we did get 99. And that year, training camp was in Victoria, British Columbia. And uh, I sat beside Wayne through that training camp. And I spent the entire training camp not picking his brain, not seeing what Grant Fuhr was like, not understanding what it was like to win championships, but basically telling all of the media to please get off my equipment. You're standing on my goal pad. <laughs> You're standing on my skate. Would you please give me some room? And so it was a unique experience. We had more members of the press at our training camp than the Stanley Cup final the year before. And Wayne, one player, simply took us to one of the best teams in hockey and not only built that franchise up from what would have been just a mediocre team uh, to a, a dynasty, to Stanley Cup champs, to opening hockey all across the South from Anaheim, from Tampa, mm -hmm. to Florida, to uh, San Jose, you name it. I mean, it just opened the doors for all of us to have a, an ability to go from 16 teams to 21 teams and now to 32 teams. And uh, if Wayne had stayed in Edmonton, I don't think we would have seen that Southern growth. So one player uh, made for a lot of players getting jobs, a lot of families getting uh, fed at the table every night. And so I can't say enough good about him. And I remember the, one of the first days of, of, of the year, Robbie Fatour called me in the office and said, he was the coach, said, you know what your job is this year? And I'm thinking, okay, back up starter what it would it be he said make sure you stop Wayne Gretzky in practice because if you don't you're out of here in a hurry so if I ever tried in practice Ricky maybe not against you but when it came to 99 uh you're looking at George Vezina in the net come practice <laughs> like Gretzky opened up hockey on the west coast of uh of hockey and uh, the United States you end up with the Islanders to open things up on the east side uh, maybe to help there a little bit and so you were part of something special with the Islanders for a couple of years talk to us about that time 
Well, I didn't really open anything up. I mean, they, they had all the barn doors open with, with a dynasty that uh, Bill Torrey and Al Arbor had created. Uh, those two gentlemen from general manager to coach uh, were together for 25 years. Bill would draft the players and Al would be responsible to develop them. And at some point, if Al couldn't, the player was traded. But they created a culture that was enormous. Al was the best coach. I ever played for was a father figure to all of us taught us some great life lessons his wife taught our wives great life lessons she was an ambassador for our wives teaching what it was like to be a wife in the nhl it was just a great family situation for all of us we had a young team we had four young defensemen uh we we you know played uh, against washington in the first round of a playoff series beat them then we went up against the 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 the, the dragon the Pittsburgh Penguins, who were two-time Stanley Cup champs, and they had everything from yeah. Yager to oh, I forgot Lemieux. Yeah, Lemieux, uh, Francis. They, yeah, they wasn't bad. Yeah, <laughs> not a bad team. I think they finished the year with 16 straight wins, no shootout wins, no ties, 16 wins, and we played them. And Al Arbor just sat us in the room. We we're going up against Pittsburgh, and we we're all like a bunch of sheep, just you know, bah, we don't have a chance. You know, we're booking our travel for vacations. And he just said, hey, to Pat Flatley, can you tie one shift against Mario Lemieux? And of course, Flats, of course I can tie a shift. And then Ray Ferraro, yes, I can. And Claude was out all the way down the list. Great, first period's done. Now let's go to the second period. And he did it again. And they said, guys, if we can just tie a shift with Lemieux, not win it, we get to game seven in overtime, all we have to do is win one shift. Okay, seems like we can put that into a parcel and accomplish that. And sure enough, game seven, overtime, David Wolick, we won one shift. And I thought, this guy is a genius. He called the series before we even started. But uh, that was a young team that was put together after the dynasty. And we had some of the best mentors that a hockey player or an ambassador or a person on this planet could ever have in Bill and Al. They were just genuinely great people. Well, speaking of handling the cup, you guys, now that must have been quite a party because this is New York. This isn't some small city that wins a cup and has, you know, 100,000 people shopping. I mean, this is New York City, so everything is over the top. So some of the parties must have been pretty wild. And I, 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 I got to add this one, Heels. 1995, they started giving players a cup for the day. Now, is that a coincidence because of what you guys did or anything you guys were doing with the cup that had them do that? Or because it all of a sudden, coincidentally, just started the next year? Yeah, you know, I wish, you know, if we, if we, Watch that parade in New Jersey when they went around the parking lot at Burn Arena. That would have been so exciting, uh, very exciting. Go around the parking lot, my gosh. Must have been 20,000 fans or 15,000. Um, you can sense the cynicism. Yeah, you know, the, everything was done and overdone in New York. The parade was overdone. You know, the team provided limos for players. No one was to drive. Uh, the, the party, the Russians had it at Brighton Beach, which was something like I've never seen in my life before. Uh, and we had the cup that summer, and everyone got to take it to where they wanted to take it to. One of the players who I, I won't name, uh, but, you know, when you lift the cup, you tend to lift it by the top. Yeah. You're really not supposed to, you know, and the top came off. Okay, you've got a bunch of people coming over, and the cup is in two pieces. So you, you're just going to hand them here, here. Just take a drink out of the glass, okay? No, two pieces. Gorilla, so he decided gorilla, to gorilla glue. Gorilla glue. <laughs> no, they, they, they actually used solder, Ricky. They went one step further. 
except it was uh, lead solder. So for anyone that doesn't know the cup is silver, not lead. So they covered up about 15 names. <clears throat> so it didn't look good on us. And, uh, and you know, each of us had a day and we, we enjoyed it fully. Uh, some of the guys had won multiple cups, so maybe it wasn't that big. I had it in Pickering. I took it to the Legion. I took it to the hospital. I took it to Sick Kids Hospital. And we, we had a big shindig uh, in my area. And people still remember it. But uh, after that year, the NHL said, okay, I'm watching this Glenn Healy and Nick Kiprio serve drinks at MTV off the bottom of the cup. Probably not a good thing. I'm watching Nick Kiprios and Glenn Healy take it to McSorty's. And within three and a half minutes, two guys who really didn't play lost the cup and it disappeared in New York to the point we had to get hundreds of police officers to find it. So that next year, that's the year they had security go with the cup everywhere it went for every party. So for Phil Pritchard and Mr. North, those guys, I got you a job for 26 straight years and you've been to every party. So at some point you can thank me in your acceptance speeches at the Hall of Fame. But after that, you get the cup, you've got security. And it was the New York Rangers that wrecked it for everybody. So way to go team, and I'll take that any day. <laughs> Now, a couple of the guys you play with, I know you've had, you, you and Ty used to always have this thing going back and forth with you other the time. I mean, maybe give the listeners a couple of the, the stories between you two guys. Like, because uh, I know he thought of himself as a real prankster, and I think he still does. So, just kind of. Yeah, you, 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 guys you, you, would, you would never cross Ty. Uh, he would go to all ends of the earth to get you back. There's no amount of money. There's no distance you can travel. There, there's no hiding spot for you. He was uh, like he was on the ice. He was uh, a, a, as big a bulldog prankster as you could ever get. He was one of the most loyal teammates that I've ever met. He yeah. would be absolutely, he would have your back in every situation, anytime, any place. And it's, it's good to know that. I, I recall one game, there was a player in New Jersey. I was standing talking to, I wasn't playing and uh, I just wished him a, a Merry Christmas. You know, a beautiful year here we go and hope your family's doing good merry christmas ty at that point thought he was yapping at the bench jumped over and knocked him out and the game ended and i said to ty ty he wished us a merry christmas well i don't care he shouldn't talk to you on the bench anyways okay so there we go thanks for that but uh yeah ty and i we we have a great relationship to this day uh you know he is uh He's as loyal as you're ever going to get. But in the dress room, uh, it was easy, uh, you know, grabbing those strings and playing with Pinocchio and just working them every day in front of the group. Uh, he was falling for it all. Yeah. I keep looking at you, and I've known you for a number of years, but, you know, you do bear a striking resemblance at some point. I'm sure you've been told you look like Robin Williams, especially playing in L.A. at some point. Like, ever, anybody ever confronted you on that? And you could probably do that golf joke that he does very, very well. <laughs> but we were uh, we were on my honeymoon in Bermuda, and uh, you know I thought time to get away. You know, um, getting out of New York, season's over. We got married, and I can sense this guy in Bermuda from New York looking at me in the buffet line, staring at me, and comes to me and says, "I love you, man. I watch you all the time." And he had his thick New York accent, you know. You're on TV all the time, and I can't, I, I can't get enough of you. you. I love you, man. Well, can I get an autograph? I'm like, sure, yeah, no problem. So he comes over, 
what's your name? So and so, Glenn Healy gave it to him. He goes, You're not Robin Williams. <laughs> and I never fucking said I was. Okay. <laughs> and again, he walked away. So yeah, it's 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 been said a couple times, but uh, but uh, uh, no, not quite as funny as Robin. He was a lot better looking, but I'll take the I'll take the compliment. So and I've had a really great time with you guys as well. Could yeah. you do the spiel on the golf that he did though? As good as him, I bet you could with your accent. I have to give up my day job. I don't know if I do that. So. <laughs> Our guest today is someone you played against throughout most of your career. He played 13 years, was one of those accommodating guys who'd play any way you chose. And one of only nine players over 3,000 penalty minutes. That's 50 games, by the way, for those keeping score. Won a Stanley Cup with Montreal in 86. Named a Team USA for the 1987 Canada Cup. And was chosen for the 91 All-Star Game. And along with uh, speaking, a speaker now, spending his time, he has his own show, uh, Off the Cuff, with Chris Nyland. Uh, he has lots of players on, does what we kind of do, only at probably a little higher level. And uh, speaks, again, very seriously about uh, some of his addiction issues and is a real spokesman for that, much like yourself, Squid. Uh, we welcome to the show, Chris Nyland. We are very fond of nicknames on this show. Now, you have one of the best, Knuckles. <laughs> I mean, it's got an obvious tone to it. Maybe explain who gave it to you and how'd you get it? Uh, a friend of mine, Jerry Dwyer. Now, how I met Jerry, uh, I was in college and um, Jerry was on the JV team and I was on the varsity team. And uh, one day after practice, I went up to sit in the stands because I had a couple of friends playing a college game after our practice. They were playing at Boston State College. And this kid come up, he was in the stands, uh, he was sitting there and he'd come up and sat down. I struck up a conversation with him, blah, blah, blah. Uh, he told me he's from Rhode Island and I'm on the JV team at Northeast. We became very good friends. Now, you know how hockey isn't like school, you know, JV and varsity guy. You don't hang around with them, them <laughs> JV guys. It'd be like NHLers hanging around with AHLers. So, but I became very good friends with him and Jerry, um, made the team the following year and he you know I had uh, I was still fighting off the ice you know you can't fight in college hockey but I was still fighting off the ice I broke my hand in a fight off the ice um, I ended up getting another fight off the ice where I got my finger almost bit off by I fought three guys and one of them bit me so bad I almost cut my finger off but I ended up in the hospital uh, with a massive infection and I was in there for about two weeks. Anyway, when I came back, Jerry gave me the nickname Knuckles and it stuck all the way through from college to my NHL days until my days here as a grandfather. <laughs> the year I got drafted, I stayed in school another year. I wanted to leave. My dad said, come on, I stay in school. Don't leave. What are your chances of making the Canadians? Look at them three Stanley Cups in a row going for their fourth. So I went with a buddy of mine, Franny Flaherty. Um, we went in to see the Bruins practice and the Canadians practice the morning of, I think it was game four that year, uh, too many men in the ice year. And um, we went and watched the practice and we're in there. Franny said, why don't you ask them, uh, somebody there with the team, if we can get tickets, we'll go to Montreal and watch game five. 
So I'm like, yeah, well, he said, come on, go ahead. So I go in and I see Claude Rell. I didn't know who he was. I just knew he was with the team. He had an overcoat on. I went up, short little fat guy, one eye. He's standing against the wall, kind of bouncing back and forth on his feet. And uh, I went up to him. I said, hey, uh, sir, I know you're with the team. I said, I've been drafted by you guys. I'm wondering if I could get a couple tickets next um, game in Montreal. He said, oh. I don't do this, uh, this man over here. Uh, and it was Irving Grumman's son, the general manager, Howard. He was a road secretary. So I go to Howard. I say, hey, listen, Howard, I drafted by you guys. I'd love to go to the next game in Montreal. And he said, what's your name? I said, my name's Chris Nyland. I play at Northeastern University here in Boston. He got out the goddamn book, yearbook, and he flipped through the back pages and he went through and he saw my name and he said, oh, okay. Yeah, I'll leave you a couple tickets, blah, blah, blah. And great, I'm excited as all hell. We leave the, uh, we watch the practice and we <clears throat> hung around for a while and we jump in the car and we, Franny had a big old 78 T-Bird and uh, we looked like a couple of wise guys from Boston, a couple of Irish guys looking to rob a bank or someone, anyway. We come around the corner at the garden. There's Lafleur, Lemaire, and Lupian. And Franny says, "Why don't we see if they want to ride? We'll give them a ride to the hotel." So Franny calls up, "Say, you guys want to ride the hotel?" And they look at each other and they go, "You know, boom, sure." They jump in the back of the T-Bird. I'm in the front seat and we're talking. Franny says, "Yeah, we're going up the next game. We're going tonight." Ba ba ba. You know, LaFleur said, you mind if I light up a cigarette? No, no problem. Have a butt. They all got Stanley Cup rings on. So I, cocky young bastard I was, I said, listen, hey, you guys. I said, I'm going to be with you guys. I'm going to be playing with you next year, right? And LeMann said, really? You're going to be playing with us? How are you going to do that? I said, well, I said, I was drafted by you guys uh, this year. He said, where do you play? I said, I play at Northeastern right here. I was drafted by you guy he goes what round were you dropped in i said 19 well the three of them near pissed themselves laughing I, I i just figured you know i got drafted big deal so what if you drafted in the first or the 19th what's that mean i i just didn't have a clue and they were laughing i'm like, okay i said i'll see you guys next year anyway we drop them off i get to training camp the next year oh no we go up to the game the next game we get there we, I go to the ticket window and said, can I have a ticket for Chris Island? Sure, that'll be 320-something dollars. I mean, what? I, I had to pay for the goddamn tickets, <laughs> which I couldn't believe. I was in shock. And uh, anyway, so we ended up paying for them. Franny threw them on his credit card. And then um, we, um, I show up to camp the next year. And sure enough, I'm in the locker room. And... You know, where they break you up in four teams, right, Rick? And yeah. you play the round robin, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, I'm sitting there. LaFleur is on my team. And I'm shot my skate, uh, tight my skates. And he keeps looking over at me, looking at me. He sees me. He finally says, hey, it's you. You're the kid from Boston. He said, you said you were going to be here. I said, I told you I was going to be here. There's no word of a lie. I go out on the ice. We play the game. Who's against? I'm out in the faceoff. And Big Gilles Lupien's here. He's looking at me. And I'm like, oh, no, I'm in a fight already. I just got here. I, I'm going to get a fight already. And he's looking at me. He's looking at me. He says, hey, Tabanak, 
He said, it's you, the kid from Boston. You said you're going to be here. I said, I told you I was going to be here. January 27th, 1988. Let's get back to talking a little bit about where you were traveling to. Now, you were moved to the New York Rangers. I mean, the hockey gods are probably thinking of all places to get traded to. First off, Montreal drafts you, our tribal. And then the second probably worst place to go would be for rivalry for Bostonians would be New York. And there you are off to the Rangers. How did that all take place that day? I, I That almost broke me. Now, I never, once I came to Canadian, like I told you, I'm extremely loyal uh, to family, friends, and certainly my hockey team, uh, my teammates. And that uh, I was devastated when that happened. I don't know how guys do it. I just don't. Everybody says, oh, it's part of the game. It's the business. Oh, yeah? Up your ass with that one, with me, because, um, like, I just, I never wanted to play with another team. Uh, once I came to Canadians and once I established myself here, um, I had a, I made a deal with myself early on that I was never going to let a coach tell me or even make the inference that I should go out there and fight. Now, listen, I know coaches, they're going to put me on the ice in situations, stuff like that. I had a coach, Jacques Lemaire, who took me out of those situations. Mm-hmm. So there's a, a respect thing there going on with me. Well, I'll respect you. You respect me. You're going to disrespect me. Well, see you later. And I had that happen with um, the coach here at the time, Jean Perron. He went around the room in Hartford. uh, We're going through a tough time, losing some games. And uh, Jean went around the room to everybody. He came to me and he said, Hey, Chris Nyland, when is the last time you had a fight? And I said, uh, what do you know about fighting? You, huh? you, wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to stick up for your mother if someone grabbed a pocketbook. I give it to him. And uh, anyway, he wasn't happy with that. I did it in front of everybody. And um, I remember going back, uh, played that night, and then went to Buffalo. And Jacques Leperrier. Well, I went to practice that morning. I had a different jersey on. I wasn't with my line for the first time, Ganey and Nile, Ganey and Carbonell. And I went back to the hotel, had lunch. I, I, I just knew something was coming. I, uh, I, I, was, uh, I was having a hard time. Anyway, I got back to the room and uh, Jacques Leperrier called me, assistant coach. He said, hey, knock. I said, what's up, Lappy? He said, uh, Listen, uh, the coach, uh, he want to talk with you down his room. Uh, I say, hey, Lappy, listen, you know I love you. I respect you. I said, if the fucking coach wants to talk to me, tell him to get on the phone and call me himself. I hung up, and two minutes later, he called me. And he said, ah, Chris, I'm the guy, what's up? He goes, oh, uh, can you come down to the room? Uh, I want to talk with you about your ice time. So I'm like, okay. I walked down the room. The door's wide open, and I walk in. I said, so what's up? He said, oh, uh, Serge is on the phone. And I was like, oh, my heart dropped, you know. And I got on with Serge, and he said, "Ah, big boy, I'm going to trade you. And I said, where would you trade me to? And he said, "Um, St. Louis. I said, Serge, I don't want to go to St. Louis. I don't even want to leave the Canadians, but I ain't going to St. Louis. He said, well, where do you want to go? And I said, I'd like to go to Boston. He said, I can't do that. And I knew Phil uh, kind of always liked me, always talked to me when I was down there, say hi and bye, I'm friendly. 
and New York was close to Boston, my family and stuff. So I, I said, listen, can I go to the Rangers? And he had already traded me to St. Louis. He said, let me call you back. And he did it. Now, big surge. Um, I talked to him afterwards and I, I love surge and Serge, Pat Burns was in the minors at the time. And Serge told me, he said, oh, you know, I didn't think Pat was ready. It was either you or the coach. And, you know, I just didn't think Pat was ready. Although Pat was ready two months later. <laughs> Hello? <laughs> so don't bullshit me, sir. But I put Serge in a bad spot. I, the way I look at it now, and I did. Uh, I, I wish he would have chose me over that. Because honestly, the... John Perron, he got a Stanley Cup as a coach, but he's a meathead. And he just said he didn't understand the game. He couldn't he, – it was crazy. But anyway, I, I put that behind me with him. But he is a meathead. And he um, – anyway, I ended up going to New York. And it, I, I was devastated, honestly. I, 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 it almost broke me. Uh, I didn't allow it to, though. The one thing that saved me was that I stayed true to myself. I always said I was going to never let someone do that to me. And that was my only saving grace. And the fact that I was, I went on and, uh, you know, I did my job. I stuck up for my teammates. I was always there. My teammates, they needed me in New York. There's no question. Uh, playing uh, in the Patrick division there, Philadelphia used to push them around all the time. And, and then I, you know, I went on to Boston, but like I said, it almost broke me. It didn't. And, you know, it just wasn't the same. I, I, I always found myself kind of measuring everything to the Canadians because everything was done first class. It was the best. I loved it. It's all I knew was a pro. So it was hard for me to ever move on from that. Or also is that guy, you know, that's trying to make a name for himself by coming after somebody like yourself. Did you ever kind of give them that opportunity to just to get themselves better with their coach, say? Well, Lindsman was always that yappy little yappy. <laughs> yeah. and, and, like, I like Kenny. I, I met him after hockey. He's an awesome guy. I, I get along great with him. Um, but Kenny was one of them. Uh, Gary Risling was a real yippy yappy. Yeah. I couldn't stand Rizza. Uh, but he was a funny bastard when it's all said and done. Paul Baxter, another one. I threw a puck off his head uh, one game, split him wide open in the penalty box. He, he stuck me in the eye with his stick, cut me. I tried to fight him. He turtled on me, got in the box. He said, I'm going to give you it in the other eye now. I said, oh, yeah. And I looked down. The pucks were there next to Claude Mouton. Frozen. <laughs> I picked the puck up. I stood up, and I fired it right off the head. Ten stitches. Then I went after him while I was getting stitched by Dr. Mulder. You ever see Paul Baxter ask him a story? You will laugh your ass off. Anyway, um, yeah, that, just funny. Those guys, those pests like that. Uh, Who gave you the best chirp of all those guys? Uh, Lindsman was a chirp. Uh, you know, flurry a little bit, right? Multi little feel. Um, you know, Hey, where's your bucket? What bucket? It's the one you need to carry the puck in. Um, you know, just stupid stuff. Just a little bit about, uh, you know, from your personal side again, you did have a connection through family to a pretty famous Bostonian who was not really a law-abiding citizen through yeah. marriage. And 
he was a hockey fan and a good fan of yours and he used to come to some games in Montreal and Whitey Bulger. Uh, Bulger. Yeah, um, yeah. How did that all develop? Well, it was through relations through yeah, your wife. Yeah, just right? uh, through marriage, you know, and yeah, I had a relationship with him. Um, you know, some people over the course of uh, the years talking about that or people bring it up. I usually, um, I, I, I sometimes I don't like going there because people um, seem to have something wrong with it. Here's the deal. I married into that. I understood what he did for a living. I did not take part in any of that. He was always good with me. It's not like I condone what he did. Um, you know, and he, he ultimately paid the price uh, not long ago yep. uh, at the age of 90 years old in a wheelchair. He got beaten to death in prison. And, you know, you know, my, I remember my ex-wife uh, asking me, you know, is it, is it wrong that I feel bad that, you know, for someone who caused so much pain and misery in other people's lives that I feel bad for what happened to them? I said, no, it's not because it wasn't all pain and misery in your life. You had a different relationship with that person that other people didn't. And, you know, people can stand back and sit in judgment. I, I don't sit in judgment of people. Do your thing. You know, I, I never like sitting in judgment of anybody to begin with. Sit back and pick other people apart. Screw that. Um, I don't have a problem with it. I don't have a problem with um, saying that uh, I had a, a, a relationship with him and he was always good to me. Um, I visited him after he got arrested in California. Uh, spent uh, a half hour with him. And um, yeah, he, he paid the price. Um, hey, he was a hockey fan. Yeah. He yeah, he was a Canadians fan. And he was a fan. So now there is a story that when he was arrested, one of the surprise things was they found a ring, which was apparently was yours. Is that true? No. No. Um, I had two Stanley Cup rings. Mm -hmm. I only won the cup once. I gave my father my ring Yep. when I won the cup. And after Serge traded me, he brought me in one summer. Uh, the summer after, I was doing my golf tournament for um, uh, the children's hospital mm -hmm. and he called me in and sat down and he had another ring for me because he knew I, he gave mine to my dad and he felt guilty for trading me. No. Um, so I, those are the two rings. Uh, I have one of them and my father has since, who's still alive, gave the other ring to my son. Uh, Jim had enough money to go um, and I call him Jim. Uh, Jim had enough money to um, buy everybody a ring. Now we want to bring you uh, our, our interview with Austin Matthews from a couple months ago, just during the lockout period, and just listen to what uh, the young man has to say. So I think, so how's things uh, go? How's the weather down here today, by the way? Uh, it's a little warm. It's a little warm. I'm not sure uh, it's too appealing to really anybody, but uh, it's, it's getting into those months of the, of the summertime where it's 105 every day, all day. So... Uh, not much to do outside, uh, you know, for the majority of the day, I guess. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things uh, we want to, I mean, of course, one of the things we want to talk about is, you know, here, is this, is this probably been the longest time you've been off skates since you've been a kid, like playing any kind of competitive hockey? Um, yeah, probably. I mean, I think from like my first year to 
like my third, fourth year, like the off seasons, I've taken more and more time off of skating, but obviously this is a bit, uh, this is a bit of a different situation. So definitely, uh, the most time off I think I've had, uh, just not skating and just kind of unwinding. So how's the, uh, how's the training going? Uh, it's good. It's good. I mean, it's been, uh, it's been a bit different than your, I guess, average, uh, your average off season, but been, uh, you know, making the most of it and then doing everything I can to, to stay in shape and then just be ready. Now you've got a, uh, you got a built-in road hockey goalie living with you. So I, you know, yeah. there, is there any matches going on in the driveway? <laughs> no, I lucked out. I lucked out having him here, just uh, somebody to shoot on and just kind of, uh, you know, I guess go through this with, uh, whether it was shooting pucks, shooting hoops, uh, just nice to kind of have somebody with you, right? Just to kind of pass the time. So uh, here's one of the questions. I've been getting back to the training. Just uh, for the for got a lot of young viewers out there watching today. What uh, take us through one of your workouts, like what you would do throughout the day as a training session? Um, I mean, I've kind of done some different stuff. Uh, you know, here I think I'm starting to kind of get away from uh, like heavy weightlifting. I think and just trying to kind of get my body. Uh, just kind of feeling good and, and just kind of moving as well as I can. Cause I mean, I'm pretty big and pretty strong, but you know, I want to, you know, kind of be able to move like, uh, like some of these smaller guys are able to move. So just kind of been trying some different stuff and, uh, hopefully it kind of works out. Yeah. So have you been able to get on the ice at all in your, uh, quarantine period or down isolation? Yeah. Period? Yeah. No, I, I have been digging on the ice. Um, uh, I'm lucky. Um, so, you know, I've been, kind of trying to keep everything, uh, you know, shake the rust off and kind of stay in shape and just kind of, you know, get your timing and everything back. But obviously it's nothing like, uh, you know, competitive NHL practice. Right. So just yeah. trying to, trying to stay in that kind of, uh, that kind of motion and stuff. So when I am back, I can adjust quickly. The, the next thing now, psychologically, you're sitting at home and you're training, but nothing is like being at the rink or in the, your own real gym at the rink. Do you have to, did you have to motivate yourself a little more to, to push yourself to, to stay training as hard as you do? Yeah, a little bit. I think, uh, I mean, I don't think there's really any extra motivation. Obviously, uh, we're hoping that we can come back and play and there's obviously a Stanley Cup up for grabs. So, um, you know, I think that's as, uh, as much motivation as you need right there. Well, actually, well, I, so I was going to say to you, now is Freddie's landlord, who, the, uh, who designates the chores around the house? You? No, I think it's a joint, uh, it's a joint, uh, kind of production. I think everybody just kind of pitches in and does their part, but, um, I mean, he's, uh, he's one of my closest friends on the team and obviously he's like, uh, he's like family to me. So I didn't, uh, I didn't hesitate, to, to kind of invite him down here and stay with me. And I mean, he was nice enough to get me this really, really nice, uh, expensive coffee machine to kind of say, uh, say thank you for letting, uh, letting him stay here. So it was very nice of him. He didn't need to do that. Well, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. So I think that. So here's a couple of things here. I mean, Rick, if he can join us in here, we're just, we're going to get to him at some point. As it, when you played in the uh, North American World Cup for the North American team in World Cup mm -hmm. as a rookie, did that? Uh, how much impact that that have on you, or take some of that anxiety you might have had as a rookie with high expectations coming into the Toronto camp? Yeah, I mean, it was kind of one of those things. Uh, you know, I didn't really know what to expect, right? Like, I, I'd never. You know, I'd play at some high levels. I played in, in the world championships uh, against NHL guys. Uh, you know, in the Swiss League, you're playing against some ex-NHL ex veterans. So I didn't really know what to expect kind of going into it. Obviously, uh, a lot of talented guys on the team. So 
I knew uh, for myself, I was, uh, you know, starting off kind of as a 13th forward. So I kind of needed to earn my, earn my role and, and earn my position uh, on the team. And, you know, I was lucky enough to have guys around me that I've, uh, you know, known in the past or played with in the past to kind of help me adjust. But uh, I think that was nice to, to kind of have that, uh, that experience prior to my first NHL camp, just to, you know, I think psychologically just, you know, knowing that I can I can play and that I belong out here with some of the best players in, in the league and obviously uh, competing at a pretty high level uh, in that tournament. Yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, and you, and you can see it. And I mean, I think the other thing, too, is a lot of you guys were all roughly the same age, all within a couple of years of each other. So I think that also that bonding amongst all of you must have gone a long way, too, especially when you're away from the rink and because you know, like, you're all basically in the same boat. No, it, it absolutely did. And I think um you know the biggest uh i think the biggest moments that we had i think of you know you want to call bonding was you know definitely came outside of the rink and um you know just dinners and and stuff like that and you know having a couple beers together and just kind of talking and just kind of bonding so i think that stuff's super important and like you said we're all around the same age all kind of you know going through uh, i guess similar things i guess uh, as far as our careers and you know how they're just kind of starting so uh, it was definitely uh, an amazing experience. Which leads me to the next part that we we're going to ask is Patrick Marlowe. Now, there is a veteran who's been around, Hall of Famer to be for sure. Uh, and there's a guy that became a big brother to you and a number of the younger guys. I mean, we obviously we knew it, it seems like he was such a great guy. What was it about him that, that made this attraction and this bond with you and the other guys? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, honestly, he's just such a selfless person. Um, you know, anything... He's just the guy that's always going to be there for you, no matter what the the situation is or the scenario. And I think that's kind of something that, um, you know, a lot of us kind of learn from him and just, you know, how he uh, how he engages with with each individual, with each uh, each teammate, staff member. I mean, he's the ultimate professional. So, um, no, those two years that uh, that I had with him uh, were special ones. And you know, even though we're not playing together anymore, I mean, he's, he's a guy that. Uh, you know, he's a friend for life. So I'm really fortunate that I got the opportunity to play with him and then obviously uh, create that bond. Yeah. And I mean, you can see that almost filter throughout that uh, club because I, as I, as I suspect, just the way you guys, like you guys all liked each other. Yeah. I mean, you could just, you could see the way you guys, you can tell when guys play together, whether they actually like each other or not. And that's not always the case in professional sports. Yeah, I think it's different for, for everyone. And uh, I mean, I've been lucky in my four seasons in Toronto. I mean, we've had great, great teams, great guys. Um, you know, sometimes you can have a bad egg and, and that can kind of put a bit of a damper on the team. But I mean, in my four years, it's just been all, uh, you know, all, all great guys, um, you know, whether they're still in Toronto or not, they're guys that you know, you're going to have relationships with and friendships with for, for life so i feel really fortunate for that and obviously uh patty's one of those guys yeah that's fantastic and i mean okay so let's you were approaching we don't want to we want to we want to appease the hockey gods and not throw any jinxes at it but you were approaching that magical number with a five in front of it and now was there a point in time when you actually thought that that was possible to reach that i mean obviously when you got to 47 but before that and i only say that because now rick if he'll join us here at some point <laughs> When Rick was, he was 22, by the way, when he he scored the, we both scored 50 for uh, the first time as a Maple Leaf. Um, he said when he got to be at 45 goals, he hadn't, he realized never before had a Toronto player scored 50. Yeah. He didn't even know the point. 
So what was your thoughts on all of that coming in? Um, I mean, to be honest, I just try to kind of keep my mind off it for the most part. But, uh, you know, I think in the back of my head, I mean, I, I know what I, I'm capable of and uh, the expectations and the goals that I set for myself, are, I think, are higher than anybody else's uh, are going to be. So, um, I mean, I think it's always in the back of your head, especially when you're kind of creeping up towards that number. And, um, yeah, it's, I mean, it's unfortunate uh, I wasn't able to, to obviously complete, uh, you know, that, that goal and obviously with some games left, but I mean, I think everything happens for a reason and I'm sure, uh, you know, I'm hopeful to get another crack at it. Well, I think you will. I, 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 I'm a bit of a bet man the odd time, so I'm betting that you <laughs> get another shot to do that. I'm sure. Austin. Thank you. Now I think that uh, one of the things that I, uh, I, I'd ask you is I, I'd be, now, I, when I followed the Leafs for every game last year and documented, I used to always check the warm-ups for you guys. And one of the things, well, let me set you up like this before I say that. What are, Do you have any pregame rituals or any sort of pre-practice rituals that you do? That Because every play, hockey player has got something they do that just, you know, just every day they do this. It's a cre- we're all creatures of habit yeah. when it comes to the game. Yeah, I do, like, I do a lot of kind of, like, funky stuff. But I think it's just, I guess your routine that you're going through and it just feels right. So for myself, I mean, um, you know, I like to get to the rink pretty early. Uh, I'm usually one of the first guys there and just, I don't like to really be rushed. So whether it's a practice or a game and uh, you know, I like to have a little bit, a uh, little bit of a snack and then just kind of get into my, my whole routine, take my stick, um, you know, just kind of get everything aligned, get my, uh, like my end game drinks kind of going like a bio steel or something like that. And, um, you know, get some treatment, um, stretch, uh, kind of do all these, uh, these stretches in my warm up all in the, in the same order every time. And then, you know, I get dressed, I put on the, uh, the left, you know, like my left shin pad first, uh, my left sock, left skate, um, yeah weird stuff and then for some reason when i get to like my oh i always put my right elbow pad on first and then um i don't know just like weird stuff right that i don't know i guess when you think about it, it sounds crazy but it's just kind of one of those psychological things and then um you know i say a prayer uh before i head out to warm-ups and then it's kind of just uh game mode from there on well one of the things i noticed and, and it did stand out after my following the guys so after going 89 games i mean i i did notice after a while in the warm-ups you and mitch were always last guys to leave the ice and it, I, it caught me a few games to catch it, but I would notice that you, every game then I started looking for it, that you would put a puck in the red dot of the face-off circle on the shooting yeah. end, and you'd be on one knee, you'd take a few shots, but then, then you guys were always the last guys to leave the ice, and you'd flip a few pucks around and make a few dazzling passes, and then toss a few pucks to the kids. I actually made some good graces with kids who I'd see the kids with the signs and I tell them they were trying to get a puck. I would tell them where you would go because you guys threw them almost invariably at the same yeah, spot yeah. all the time. But what started that end of the pregame skate ritual? Uh, I mean, it's good that you're reminding me of this stuff because a lot of it I've already forgotten. So once we get back to playing, I'm going <laughs> to need you to maybe send me this, uh, this interview so I can go back and make sure I'm doing all my crazy stuff. But yeah, I usually, uh, like, yeah, I come and meet Freddie kind of, uh, probably halfway through warmups and then he goes in the net and yeah, I put a puck there that, uh, that I end up shooting, um, probably a couple minutes later, but, um, I don't really know what started. I've always kind of liked being the, the last guy off in warmups. And I think my first year, um, you know, McCulloch was the, was the guy that liked to be the last yeah. one off. So obviously I respected him better in guy. And, 
um you know let him do his thing and then obviously once uh once he was no longer with us i was always kind of last guy so um and then i think just you know it's cool i think our warm-ups we 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 tend to fill up the the stands quite well and there's a lot of kids that you know come down with signs and stuff like that so i mean i don't really see a, a problem kind of taking five seconds out of your warm-up to toss a kid a puck and kind of make his day so I think that's yeah. what the, that's what the game's all about, and I think it's I don't think it's something that myself or, or Mitchie are going to stop doing. Well, I'm sure you saw it, but I saw a couple smiles on the faces when they'd run after me and follow me after and, and show me the pucks, and it was it's it's worth it. Believe me, you're putting big smiles in some pretty big kids' faces. So, yeah, of course. I think it, I know you're probably on the run and you're pretty busy. So one more question here, just for some of the people out there. Now the dressing room, we we touched on that before. Who's the, who's the, well, I was going to ask you if PlayStation, maybe this would be a double question. Who's the best Xbox PlayStation player in the team? And who's the biggest clown? Um, I'd say the best Xbox or PlayStation player would probably have to be uh, Mitch Marner or Zach Hyman. Uh, Hyman started his own gaming company, so he, he takes it pretty seriously. He's pretty dialed in. Um, and then the biggest clown um i don't want to say clown but no, for jokester, sure the, okay, yeah the, the joke the jokester the jokester for sure is uh is justin hall he's got quite the sense of humor um you know just a nice guy to be around always makes a laugh so uh, i'd have to go with him awesome guy well, that's awesome well listen austin i can't thank you enough for doing this uh I can't believe Squid missed it all, but I don't know what happened to him. He probably pushed exit by mistake. Yeah, who knows? I was looking forward to talking to Rick. Well, what we're going to do, though, is when we do that day event eventually happens, we're not going to – again, remember the hockey guys were watching? Yeah, yeah. Um, We're going to get you back on the podcast if we can, and uh, we'll have a little chat with him about it. Yeah, that'd be great. I'm looking forward to it. Well, Squid, there you go. That's uh, part three. As I said, some real characters, some great stories there. By the way, folks, if you would go to any of our iPod sites and you can find the full version of all those stories, but some great ones and some real characters, wasn't there this year, hey, Squid? A lot of good characters, a lot of funny guys, and uh, a lot of great guys, too. I mean, you know, if it, it, I think if anybody listens to all those, they understand that hockey players are, are pretty funny and pretty good guys. And... Uh, they're, they're normal human beings that, that like to have fun and play are able to play uh, hockey at a very high level. But these guys were all fantastic on the air. And very humble. Yeah. Very humble yeah. guys. Yeah. Uh, there's no bravado and banging their chests and all that. Always, if anything, to defer. And I mean, there's a guy, look at like Brad May from a couple of shows ago. He didn't want to talk about his Stanley Cup because he had respect, has so much respect for you that he didn't want to felt like he was rubbing it in your face. Yet you wanted to hear the stories. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, of course. I mean, just because I didn't win it doesn't mean that I can't be happy for other people that won it and 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 enjoy the stories that I hear about, you know, the parade or the cup going missing or whatever whatever they did. I know a lot crazier things in the old days. Uh, than current, but uh, but still a lot of good stories. Well, I, I God, if I want to stand the cup, I think I'd be marching up and down like the subway every day <laughs> and standing on the corner of Bloor and Young going, yes, me, me, stand the cup, look. <laughs> I don't think I could ever give it up. My goodness. I mean, yeah, and you told him, never mind that. I want to hear the stories. But yeah. JR, of course, he's one of a kind. And uh, we'll certainly get him back again. But folks, anyway, we are... 
we're, we, as I said, we're excited to get going next week. We'll be dropping our first, uh, first one of the new year, uh, next week, Saturday week today, actually. And, uh, we've got some surprise guests for you guys coming up. Well, I hope everybody got through the new year's. Okay. Uh, hope we can get this COVID behind us and all that kind of stuff and looking forward to get going started again. So squid looking forward to get started on uh, Thursday. I can't wait. And, uh, can't wait. Very shortly, we're going to see pucks flying all over the place, and I'm looking forward to that. Well, we are already, but I mean, the real thing and uh, the, the NHL real, the big I'm guys. talking about. The big boys. The, the big boys, and so excited about the Canadian, all Canadian division. I think it's going to be, and, and you know what? I, I think that people are going to love it so much. I think it's going to help the league so much that I believe maybe that might be something that they might keep going forward. I certainly hope so. Yes. Geographically, you know it's, geographically, it's probably not the best and it, it doesn't set up the other divisions geographically that well for travel purposes, yeah. but the excitement I think it's going to bring uh, is going to be, and of course, at the end of it all, only one of those seven Canadian teams are going to make it to the to the semifinals, so that's kind of nice too. That you know, six of them are going to be gone. There's only going to be one left come semifinals, and we hope it's the right one. Okay, so yeah. <laughs> leave it at that. If, you, if you need any hints, just look behind Rick. That'll give you a bit of an idea who we're talking about. Okay, so anyway, folks, you can listen to our show on all the podcast networks. I understand from our producer we're going to be on iTunes or Apple pretty soon within the next couple of days so we're on itunes i think that's apple we're on the podcast bean Podbean. go to our youtube page squid and the ultimate leads fan look up rick vive on uh on instagram or on twitter the ultimate leaf fan we're all over the place all you gotta do is punch that in you can find us and listen to some of those episodes uh while you're waiting for a new one to come but anyway folks great talking to you guys again uh great in the new year coming up hopefully all things turn around for us all and we'll talk to you soon